0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeological artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. A couple of disclaimers before we begin. Firstly, I am not a historian. I have no background in historical research, nor have I ever studied it. I bring this content to you in an attempt to be as academically rigorous as is possible for an amateur. Second, in telling Jewish history, it's important to acknowledge that being an ethnic religion, there are a wide variety of beliefs that people hold about Jewish history, which are often intertwined with their religious beliefs. For example, many Orthodox Jews believe that the Torah represents the direct word of God, and that the entirety of the text is historical truth others believe that the torah is a collection of invented fables meant to convey ethical principles and that god does not exist at all and of course there are a million subtle variations in the middle as the saying goes two jews three opinions the story that i tell in this podcast is a historical account as that is where my interest lies however this is just one framework for understanding the jewish past and does not invalidate the beliefs or experiences of others so with that out of the way, let's begin. Being neither a historian nor a seasoned podcaster, I had many questions when starting this podcast. But the first and most important was where to begin the story. I figured there were really two main options. The first was to stick with the Torah's answer. Judaism started with the first Jew, Abraham, who was thought to have lived sometime in the late 21st or early 20th century BCE. The trouble I had with this first option is that, aside from the Torah itself, we don't have any other evidence, at least not yet, of Abraham's existence. The same goes for many of the initial characters in Genesis. And so I was brought to a second option, to start with the earliest archaeologic evidence of the existence of Jews. As it turns out, this piece of evidence is a large stone pillar on which an Egyptian pharaoh commissioned the carving of a message in 1200 BCE. Before we dive headfirst into some history, though, let's first do a quick recap of geography. The first 1,200 years or so of the Jewish story takes place in the Middle East, which is roughly shaped like a cross, albeit a slightly bent out of shape one. At the bottom, or base of the cross, sits two small countries, Oman and Yemen, beneath which sprawls the Arabian Sea. Directly north of these two countries, forming the stalk, or downward limb of the cross, is Saudi Arabia, the largest country by area in the region. The leftward arm of the cross is formed by Egypt, beyond which lies all of Africa. The rightward arm is formed by Iran, with the continent of Asia to the east of it. Turkey forms the upward facing limb of the cross, eventually bleeding into southern Europe, and at the cross's center are a grouping of countries within which the majority of this history will take place. Traveling from east to west, these include Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, jordan and israel so with a sense of the broader geography of the middle east in mind let's zoom in a bit for the purposes of this show we will situate jerusalem at the center of our map as this is where much of the action happens jerusalem is an ancient city which sits nicely right in the center of israel israel one of the central countries of the middle east is a thin piece of land that together with the sinai peninsula to its southwest forms the shape of an arrowhead with its point facing south. North of the Arrowhead lies the Mediterranean Sea. South of it lies the Red Sea. At the time this story begins, most of the Middle East was ruled by empires, large political groups united by a common supreme leader and often by a small set of common beliefs or cultural practices. Think of the Galactic Empire from Star Wars as an example. In 1200 BCE, there were three big empires ruling in the Middle East the Egyptians, Assyrians, and Babylonians. The ancient Egyptian civilization was born in Egypt and was ruled by pharaohs, essentially kings who often rose to godlike status. In the 13th century BCE, the Egyptian empire ruled over part of western Israel, most of modern-day Egypt, and the northern area of Nubia, an area of desert south of Egypt proper. Egypt was once the dominant power in the area, but their power and influence were starting to fade, and they were starting to lose grip on some of their more far-reaching territories. The kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, also strong empires of their time, ruled over areas of Mesopotamia, which was located in what is now modern-day Iraq. These empires, too, were reaching the end of their regional supremacy, starting to be rivaled by some smaller groups who were forging their way into the area. Aside from these three empires, there were also some smaller groups that were just starting to gain some influence in the region. The Persians, at this time a collection of semi-nomadic tribes, were finding a home in modern day Syria. And in Jordan, a number of small independent kingdoms existed, Aram, Amon, Moab, and Edom being the main ones. So with an understanding of the geography and politics of the time to kick us off, let's get into some history. The first time the word Israel ever appears on an archaeologic artifact comes from a chiseled inscription on an ancient stone pillar dating to 1200 BCE. The inscription was commissioned by the ruler of Egypt of the time, Pharaoh Merneptah, and it reads, Israel is laid waste, its seed is no more. As is fitting, the history of the Jews opening with a bang. So who was this boastful, although evidently misinformed, Pharaoh? Well, Merneptah ruled Egypt for a short 10 years, and was already an old man, approaching 70 years old, when he inherited rule from his father. The reason he was such an old and short-lived ruler was because his father, Ramses II, had been the longest-living pharaoh ever known. If the name Ramses sounds familiar, it's probably because you've seen Disney's Prince of Egypt movie. Ramses, Merneptah's father, is believed by most scholars to be the pharaoh who Moses famously asked to let his people go in the Passover story. So, the inscription on Merneptah's pillar may represent some early evidence that the Jews truly did leave Egypt around that time. The details of the Jews' escape, however, are a bit more unclear. If you've ever heard the expression, history is written by the victors, you know that we can't take any written or oral history as the gospel truth it always has to be interpreted in the context of when it was written, by whom, and what the writer's motives or intentions may have been. For example, you'd get a very different understanding of Canadian history if it was explained to you by the European settlers as opposed to the First Nations people. So when we read the Jewish version of the Exodus, with the Jews abused as slaves in Egypt being freed by God via the hand of Moses, we're only getting one side of the story. The Egyptian version, comes to us from an Egyptian priest named Manetho, who wrote in the 2nd century BCE. In his telling, the Jews, who were indeed slaves in Egypt, but were also street urchins and sometimes even bandits, were actually kicked out of Egypt, as opposed to fleeing of their own accord, an attempt by Ramses II to clean up the city. But regardless of whether the leaving of Egypt was an exodus or exile, most of the Egyptian Jews left and found themselves rejoining their fellow tribesmen in the area of modern-day Israel. It wasn't too long after this leaving of Egypt that the ancient Jews established their own United Kingdom of Israel, ruled by King Shaul. According to the Torah, the initial capital of this Israelite kingdom was Hebron, a city located in the modern-day West Bank. But when King David took the throne, he conquered the nearby city of Jerusalem from a Canaanite tribe called the Jebusites and made it the new capital, which it remained from then on. David's son Solomon took over the kingdom from his father, and it is said that the first temple in Jerusalem was built under his direction. After Solomon's death, however, the United Kingdom split into two smaller kingdoms, Samaria to the north and Judea to the south. I want to pause here to touch on some of the evidence we have to support the fact that this Jewish kingdom truly existed, since it is still questioned by some people. There are two main types of evidence that we rely on, direct evidence, in other words, direct mentions of the kingdom in ancient artifacts, and indirect or inferred evidence. We have a bit of both of these types of evidence to support the existence of the ancient Jewish kingdom. The first piece of direct evidence we have is a stone slab found in Israel, which boasts an inscription in the Aramaic language, commissioned by the king of Aram. Remember, Aram was one of those independent kingdoms in ancient Jordan. The inscription has been dated to the early 9th century BCE, and in it, the king celebrates his victory over what he calls the House of David, probably a reference to the Israelite kingdom. Archaeologists have also found seals pressed into clay or wax on which the word lamelech is written in Hebrew, meaning for the king. Many of these seals have been found in the city of David itself, located on the southeast hill of modern-day Jerusalem. The existence of a monarchy can also be inferred or implied by the types of buildings and constructions that survive from the period. Dotted around Jerusalem, ancient fortified cities have been found, which are surrounded by large walls with six-chambered gates set into them. These cities contain quarters for local officials, paved roads and city squares, large storehouses and stables, and are all built of massive, smoothed stones, which would have required significant manpower and some sort of organizational structure in order to build. It is hard to imagine that such impressive cities could have been built without a monarchy that had substantial power and resources. So what do we know about what life in ancient Israel was actually like? Well, we know a few things, and can guess at a few more, from ancient Jewish fortresses that have been found and excavated by archaeologists. The most important and earliest site that has been discovered is called Kirbet Kayafa. Five acres in area, the stronghold overlooks the Valley of Elah, where David is said to have battled Goliath, 30 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. It sits beside an ancient road connecting Hebron and Jerusalem, right along the border between ancient Judea and the Philistine territories. And based on its size and the number of homes found within it, It likely housed between five and six hundred people. Like other Jewish cities of the time, it is surrounded by a circular double wall made of gigantic smooth stones, some weighing as much as five tons. In between the inner and outer walls sit several storehouses and rudimentary homes. And within the eastern and western faces of the wall sit two large gateways, one facing east towards Jerusalem and one facing west towards the Philistine states. This layout is classic of Jewish cities of the time, and is rarely seen after the 10th century BCE, reinforcing its dating around the time of David. Carbon dating of burnt olive pits found at the site confirmed that it was active for about 45 years, around the year 1000 BCE. From excavations at Kirbet Kayafa and similar ancient sites, we can get a better sense of what Jewish life was actually like at the time. The first question that archaeologic excavations have helped us answer is, how did ancient Jews communicate? What language did they speak? Although we can't of course hear the echoes of ancient people's voices in our ears, we can read their writing. A broken piece of ceramic found in a water conduit at the site has six lines of old faded writing on it, which appears to be either Proto-Phoenician, the language from which Hebrew eventually emerged, or an ancient stage of Hebrew itself. This tells us both that the Hebrew language was beginning to emerge at the time, but was not quite in its modern form, and that written language was being used as a form of communication in ancient Israel. Other pieces of clay have been found as well, many almost completely intact. Simple clay jugs with two small handles on either side, cockle-shell shaped clay lamps, vase-like necked vessels have all been excavated, all dated to around 1000 BCE. And what about the religion? Well, one thing we know is that ancient Jews of the time kept a form of kashrut, the Jewish dietary laws. Among the many animal bones found at Kirbek Ke'afa, not a single one came from a pig. Now, many people of the time, not just Jews, avoided pork, but Jews seem to have been the earliest and most consistent to follow this tradition. And the Philistines, the ancient people living next door, were definitely still eating pork around that time period. We also know that Jews did believe in God and that prayer was central to their way of life. Several standing stones, called matzavot in Hebrew, have been found at Kirbet Kayafa. These were large, uncarved stones that stood upright and represented a holy place for ancient Jews to pray. Ritual altars have also been found, which look like small stone footstools with patterns carved along its edges and may have also been more portable places to pray, that individuals could have in their homes. Finally, two small portable shrines have been found, one made of clay, the other of limestone. One of these shrines depicts a flight of steps which leads through a small fountain, seeming to have been used for ritual purification, just like a mikvah is used today. The limestone shrine also has architecture which is characteristic of other Jewish temple architecture in the region, and matches perfectly the description of the first temple in Jerusalem described in the Torah. Some of the houses found on the site also contained small prayer rooms within which many shrines were discovered that were carved to look strikingly like the description of the tabernacle from the Torah. However, despite all of these signs of belief in the one God, Judaism of the time was not the pure monotheism that it is today. Stone pillars have been found in various ancient Jewish sites that sport carvings of both the name of God, but also the name of Asherah, God's female counterpart, that was commonly worshiped by pagan cultures. So it seems that the monotheism of Judaism was slowly brewing, intermingling with the pagan religions of the surrounding area in a unique blend. To put all of this evidence together, it seems that ancient Israel at the time of King David was a complex society that spoke an ancient version of Hebrew, avoided pork, and had their own unique style of pottery, prayed to several deities but with Hashem as the top dog, and had the capacity to build large fortified cities all of a similar style. The ancient Israelite kingdom and later the kingdoms of Judea and Samaria seemed to have several hundred years of relative peace, that is until the late 8th century BCE. The king of Judea at that time was a man named Chizkiyahu, a strong king who had helped Judea to become one of the most powerful kingdoms in the Middle East. But now the neighboring Assyrian empire was attempting to expand their holdings west and Judea was right in their path. The Assyrians under the leadership of their king, Sennacherib, marched on Jerusalem. He knew that the city would soon be surrounded and had to come up with a plan to try to hold out for as long as possible in the case of a siege. In a brilliant stroke of insight, he realized that the two things the Jews would need to maintain themselves in the event of a siege were food and, more importantly, water. And so he came up with a plan. He would dig a cistern, one of the most ambitious of the day, diverting water from a large spring in Siloam into a huge reservoir which would sustain the Jews for some time. The tunnels are still there to this day, and so we know exactly what they look like. They were dug through solid limestone and are a whopping 643 meters long. There are no air vents or light shafts, so the diggers would have been working in the pitch black with little air to breathe. But perhaps one of the most astonishing things about the tunnel is an inscription written in ancient classical Hebrew carved into the stone walls. It tells the story of the digging and based on the writing style, it was likely written by the diggers themselves. This is what it says. And this is the story of the tunnel. While the men wielded the pickaxes, each man towards his fellow, and while there were still three cubits to go, there was a fissure in the rock, on the right and on the left. And on the day it was broken through, the hewers struck the rock, each man towards his fellow, axe against axe. And the water flowed from the spring towards the pool for one thousand and two hundred cubits. And a hundred cubits was the height of the rock above the heads of the hewers. This represents the longest, continuous, ancient classical Hebrew inscription currently known, and makes clear that even at the time of Chizkiyahu, Hebrew was a widely used language, and literacy was attained, not just by the upper class, but even by working laborers. Fortunately, the Jews did not end up needing to rely on Chizkiyahu's master bit of waterworks. As with much of this early history, it's not entirely clear how the face-off with the Assyrians ended but Egyptian sources tell us that one of the Nubian pharaohs actually came to the Jews' rescue, dispersing the Assyrian army and preserving the Jewish kingdoms. The next several hundred years of history comes to us primarily from writing taken directly from the Torah, and so it is worth investigating the context. When was the Torah written, and by whom? Before I try to answer that question, let me give a couple more disclaimers. First and foremost, this is a hotly debated question, and one which we will never truly know the answer to. All we can do, at least from a historical framework, is to analyze the text to try to draw inferences from what we read. There are many theories within the domain of biblical historical criticism which try to explain where the text of the Torah came from. However, one of the most prominent comes from German Bible scholars of the late 19th century, in particular a man named Julius Wellhausen. In his paper, titled A History of Israel, he put forward what he called the Documentary Hypothesis. This hypothesis suggests that the Torah text comes from four unique sources, with each source originating from a slightly different time period and location in the Middle East. The basis of this theory is the analysis of themes, grammar, phrasing, and specific word choices used in different parts of the Torah. By looking at all of this, Wellhausen was able to find patterns and similarities between various sections, which he surmised each must have come from a different source. These sources were then woven together to form the Torah text that we all know today. According to Wellhausen and other proponents of the documentary hypothesis, the oldest sections of the Torah, including the story of the Exodus, can be dated as far back as the 11th century BCE. This dating is based on similarities in the text to other non-biblical texts of the period. For example, the Song of the Sea, which Miriam sings as the Jews cross the Red Sea, has striking similarities to Canaanite mythic poetry, which would have existed right around the time of the ancient Jewish kingdoms, about the time of Solomon. These earliest sources were dubbed Yahwist by Wellhausen because they refer to God by the name Yahweh. Forms of this same name appear in writings from South Canaan and other desert worlds, making it seem as though these passages were initially written by authors from the south, in Judea. Next is the Elohist source, named for the fact that it tends to refer to God as El. Incidentally, El was also the name of an important Phoenician Canaanite deity, suggesting that its writers may have been of more northern origin. It is thought that the Yahwist and Elohist sources were woven together in about the 8th century BCE, probably during the reign of Hezkiyahu, when Jews from the north met with Jews in the south in Babylon. At some point in the 7th century BCE, a third source was created. This one focused on the minutia and day-to-day rules surrounding observance of Jewish tradition, and was dubbed the priestly source. The last book thought to be added to the Torah is Deuteronomy, thought to have been written at the end of the 7th century, right around the time when Yoshiahu was reviving monotheism. We'll talk more about him later. This date was suggested because Deuteronomy is the only book of the Torah that insists that there be only one central sanctuary, one temple, at which Jews can worship and offer sacrifices to God. Finally, the book of 2nd Isaiah was likely written sometime around the 5th century BCE. This one we are able to date more exactly, as the text refers to the decrees of Persian King Cyrus the Great, who ruled at that time. So, as we hear the story of the successive kings of the Israelite kingdoms, remember that these stories may have been embellished or changed in order to advance the motives of those who wrote them, as is true with all history. After the death of King Chizkiyahu in 687 BCE, his son Menasha took the throne menasha is not looked upon kindly in the torah whereas his father was a champion of monotheism it is said that menasha was infatuated with pagan religion he put up idols in the temple and made altars to worship pagan gods like baal the phoenician god of fertility and others he even or so rumor has it made child sacrifices however near the end of his reign Manasha was captured by the assyrians and held in prison for two years during which time he seems to have come to his senses. He returned to Judea a changed man, but unfortunately died a short few years later to be replaced by his son, Amon. Amon, like his father, was also known for worshipping idols, and his name is an homage to the Egyptian sun god. Only two years into his own reign, Amon was assassinated, and the throne passed to his eight-year-old son, Yoshiahu. Yoshiyahu was known as a righteous man, and a reformer of Jewish religion, who, like Khizkiyahu decades before, was a champion of monotheism. In 620 BCE, he decided to hold a massive Passover in Jerusalem. 30,000 lambs and kids, 2,000 small cattle, and 300 oxen were slaughtered, roasted, and divided amongst the people, so that everyone could have a proper Passover meal. At the culmination of the holiday, Yoshiahu proclaimed that the temple in Jerusalem should be the one and only place for Jewish ritual sacrifice and festival pilgrimages in the world. It's important to note here that this story comes to us from the books of Kings and Chronicles, books that were written shortly after the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, at around the time the second temple was being built. So the writers were likely heavily invested in creating a narrative in which it was the will of God to have Jerusalem as the center of Jewish prayer. More business for the temple. The reality is that although there were small Jewish communities elsewhere in the Middle East, in Egypt, among other places, there likely weren't any large temples to rival the one in Jerusalem at the time of Yoshiahu. What we do know about Jewish practice at this time comes from the Ketef Hinom Scrolls, two small silver scrolls enclosed within a small amulet that were found in the caves of Ketef Hinnom, southeast of Jerusalem. On one of the scrolls is written in Hebrew the Birkat Kohanim, or priestly blessing, which is to this day recited during the high holidays services in temples and shuls. Based on its shape and size, this amulet was likely worn on the upper body as a talisman, similar to the way tefillin are used today. This is the earliest artifact on which we have a relic of a prayer, which we still use today, an ancient seed of modern Jewish liturgy. Two generations after Jerusalem's narrow escape from the Assyrians, the kingdom of Judea was once again squeezed by two neighboring powers. In Mesopotamia, the Babylonian Empire had defeated the Assyrians and were quickly becoming a dominant power. They, like the Assyrians before them, were making their way westward, with an eye towards conquering Egypt. Pharaoh Necho II, the new Egyptian pharaoh on the scene, sensed the coming threat, and in 609 BCE, he decided to make an alliance with the Assyrians to help push back the Babylonians before they gained too much power. Judea, as was often the case, lay smack in the middle, and King Yoshiahu was left to choose a side. After some deliberation, he decided to throw his hat in the ring with the Babylonians, and he took his Judean army to meet the Egyptians in battle at the city of Megiddo. The two sides fought with Egypt emerging victorious. Unfortunately, King Yoshiahu was killed in the scuffle, leaving the Judean throne vacant. In the wake of Yoshiahu’s death, his son Yehuachaz, took the throne. Unfortunately, Pharaoh Necho was on his way back to Egypt from a battle campaign in Babylon and stopped by Jerusalem on his way back. His army laid siege to the city and quickly overtook Jerusalem. Yehuahaz was captured and taken back to Egypt as a prisoner, and his brother, Jehoiakim was parked on the throne as a puppet of the Egyptians. This was a common practice at the time, a way for an empire to keep a tight grip on a newly conquered territory while avoiding mutiny by the people. Yehoiakim, not having much choice in the face of such a powerful empire, remained loyal to the Egyptians for four years. But in 605 BCE, the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonians in two significant battles, and Jehoiakim was starting to sense the tides of power turning. In an attempt to stay on the winning side, he decided to ditch the Egyptians and swing hard in favor of the Babylonians instead. For a good six years, this strategy more or less paid off. Jehoiakim and his Judean kingdom remained loyal to the Babylonians and the Babylonians pretty much left Judea alone while they pursued regional dominance. But in 601 BCE, when another battle between Egypt and Babylon ended in a draw, Jehoiakim again started to question his allegiances. In what was probably a poor choice, he returned his loyalty, if you could even still call it that, to Egypt once again. Unfortunately for Jehoiakim, Babylon's new king was a man named Nebuchadnezzar who was famous as a strong leader and impressive military general. Nebuchadnezzar was not impressed with Jehoiakim's constant side switching. And in 597 BCE, he took his Babylonian army to march on Jerusalem to punish the wayward Jews for their lack of loyalty. In a bizarre twist, just as the Babylonians were marching toward the city, Jehoiakim mysteriously died and he left his son, Yechaniah, to take the throne. After a short three months of rule, Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem, leaving the brand new king, Yechaniah, to defend the kingdom. Needless to say, the brand new king didn't stand a chance. The Babylonians easily breached Jerusalem's walls, rounded up the Jewish nobility of the time, including the king himself, and shipped them all east to Babylon as prisoners. And, in place of Yechaniah, Nebuchadnezzar placed a man named Sidkiyahu the youngest son of Yoshiahu, on the throne, essentially to act as a Babylonian puppet. However, Tzidkiyahu wasn't the docile king the Babylonians had intended. For almost 10 years, Tzidkiyahu and his subjects actually gave the Babylonians a good deal of trouble, with multiple uprisings, egged on by the Egyptians, who were the sworn enemy of Babylon. Once again, the Babylonian empire had had enough, and in 588 BCE, Jerusalem was once again surrounded by Babylonian troops. The Jews, secure within their hilltop fortresses, hoped that if they could sit tight, ration their food, and if Khizkiah, water supplies held on, the Egyptian pharaoh Apriz might come to their rescue. But Apriz was busy dealing with an uprising from the Nubians to the south, and so he left Jerusalem to the wolves. The walls of Jerusalem were breached in 587 BCE, And the babylonians took complete control of the jewish capital instead of placing a new jewish king on the throne the invading babylonian army laid waste to the place ravaging the countryside pillaging and plundering as they went and destroying the temple in jerusalem leaving it in ruins as it happens we actually do have some non-biblical evidence of this last conflict with the babylonians in the form of a series of letters written on clay shards dated to around 588 BCE, which have been found at the ancient fortress of Lachish. The letters are written from a Jewish officer to his commander in Jerusalem, and they give us a flavor of what was happening at the time. In one of his last letters, the officer mentions that he is having trouble seeing the fire signal of a nearby hill citadel from his own stronghold. This is a reference to the Jewish practice of lighting fires as beacons to neighboring cities to signal the beginning of a holiday as a warning of an approaching enemy. Another of the letters has the officer quite indignant at his commander's suggestion that he might be illiterate, again backing up the suggestion that literacy in Hebrew was widespread across all stations of life at the time. Anyhow, the Babylonians would maintain control of Judea for around 50 years until the Persian Empire under King Cyrus the Great took Judea for themselves, and allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. It is here that our story splits geographically. With the Judean countryside in ruins, the Jews had some hard choices to make. Some of them, mostly the upper-class elites, including the king, priests, and scribes, had been sent by Nebuchadnezzar as prisoners to Babylon. Some of the poorer folks, peasants and farmers, ended up staying in the devastated Judean countryside and some left as refugees, finding their new homes in small Jewish communities which had already been established in Egypt, land of the Exodus. And that is where we'll pick up next episode. Thanks for listening to The Jewish Story, and I'll see you next week.